Hello, everyone. Welcome uh, to Intercom's The Oil and Gas Podcast. Today is Friday, July 12, uh, with your host, myself, Glenn Parrott, and my co-host here, Mr. Aaron Vandeford. Aaron, good morning. Hey, good morning. Um, we are uh, very fortunate this morning to be joined uh, in studio today by the, I want to say, the former chairman of the Western Energy Alliance. And yes. And <laughs> the current board chairman of COGA, the Colorado Oil and Gas Association, and president and CEO of the largest private oil and gas operator in northern Colorado, Great Western Oil and Gas, and Mr. Rich Frommer. Rich, thank you for being here. I'm happy to be here, Glenn. Is, Thanks very much for the uh, opportunity. No, I, this is awesome. I, we're really thrilled that you were able to carve out time because I know you're a busy guy. Um, so, um, you know, we're just, we're, just thrilled for the opportunity. So it means a lot, um, uh, especially as, you know, we kind of talk about things as to what it means to be an operator in Colorado today and, you know, the current environment that we're in. But um, uh, kind of before going down that road and everything, uh, just for listeners who may not be familiar, um, can we get a little back, bit of background about yourself? Oh, you bet. Happy uh, to. So you're not originally from Colorado. You're from New York. Is that right? Uh, born, born and raised uh, native New Yorker. That's correct. <laughs> is uh, and so is, you went to school there as well. Or? Yeah, I went to college uh, upstate New York at the SUNY, SUNY uh, State University College of Oneonta, New York. It's a small state college, right smack in the middle of upstate New York, between the Catskills and the Adirondacks. Wow. And, and, and so you, at, at the time you were going to school, you were interested in oil and gas or was that not your focus? Were you focused like on marketing or? <laughs> so really I, I was there as a, a pre-med student. So oh. my, my ultimate plan was, you know, my mother, my mother said, Hey, be a doctor. You'll be fine. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but, uh, you know, my freshman year, um, taking the prerequisite courses, I took a geology 101 to cover my science credit, one of my science credits. And what was unique about this college, and very few people have ever heard of it, but it, it, at that particular time, we had a um, faculty that was made up of ex-oil and gas guys who had been May have, may have been laid off in the late 60s from oil and gas companies, and they found this idyllic little city in, in the country of upstate New York and this, this small university. So those professors had a bent to teach the geology classes with an understanding of how you explore for oil and gas. So I took that Geology 101 class, and I was hooked. Because like these guys, too, I'm signing up. <laughs> these guys were amazing lecturers and so ins inspirational that um, I jumped in and never looked back. Isn't that great when you find some, uh, you know, you it just clicks? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I definitely view myself uh, as having been very fortunate to find geology early on in my life and be able to make a career out of it. And it's been it's been a it's been challenging, but it's also been incredibly rewarding. Did but you, it's a true love. Did you think at the time? So you kind of you're going through. You're like, man, I really like this. You graduate, and you're. Were you thinking at the time, hey, I'm going to be a geologist in oil and gas, or so? No, okay. you know, as most students go yeah. through college, you go through the the uh, you know the the tedium of of doing the work in the labs and everything, and there's like, how am I ever going to make a living doing this. <laughs> right. right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there was no early, early light bulb that went off, you know, and our professor said, look, we've given you the skills to find oil and gas, but nobody's coming to this school to recruit you. <laughs> uh, right. <Yeah. laughs> so here's what you got to do. You've got to go to New Orleans, Houston, Dallas, or Denver, and start knocking on doors. And that's exactly what I did. So did you start with Denver, or did you go no, all No, I started with New heading from the East Coast. The first one you get to. The first one's New Orleans, <laughs> and 
Uh, I actually had some family friends in New, York, New Orleans and stayed there for a number of months and did some work as a, got an early job as a mud logger offshore. And, oh, right on. Yeah, okay. so, so I had a little experience there. And what I, you know, uh, I can't, I worked my way through college, right? Okay. And I had two jobs in college. One was driving the college team bus around New England and the other one was the manager, the school that had, a, had its own ski area. So I was the manager of the ski area. <laughs> so I had keys to the snowcat and, and the lift. And, and uh, the bus. And the bus. <laughs> so uh, I was a popular guy. I, had a, I hired all my friends, you know, to, to work at the ski area. You had the keys to fun. It, it, was, a fun, it was a fun college life. Yeah, for sure. And so... Um, how did you end up in Denver? Obviously, there's a skiing aspect component to it, but that probably wasn't the driver that got you. Well, actually, it was. Oh. <laughs> After you spend a few months in New Orleans, uh, especially in the summer, uh, you can start to have a, uh, uh, a desire for cooler climates. And I had in uh, one spring break, me and a bunch of fraternity brothers piled into a car and we drove to Colorado to ski for spring break. And I hit my first powder day in Aspen and I said, I got to come back here again. So <laughs> I'm sitting here listening to this going, gosh, that's how I end up here as well. It was a road trip with my buddies where I was like, we're just going to go to Colorado. Yeah. And right. You end up here and the state just absorbs you. Yeah, yeah, it was. Those were definitely John Denver days, Rocky yeah. Mountain High days, and uh, uh, when I first came out. But yeah, no, having learned how to ski back east on blue snow, <laughs> uh, rock solid, rock yeah. solid yeah. snow, uh, coming out here was it was like dying and going to heaven. So that became when I when I received a phone call from a buddy of mine who had just graduated DU and said. You know, I'm thinking of getting an apartment here in tent in Denver. I could use a roommate. What do you think? I said, "Goodbye, New Orleans. Um, <laughs> I'm headed to Denver." Yeah, corks de decay slower than that decision, I imagine. Absolutely. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, Aaron here is a big skier. You you were. I grew up in the mountains. Yeah. I, I didn't have to take spring break to get here. <laughs> yeah, right. But I, I tricked my wife into getting here. Similarly. Right. Yeah. So, um, so that's so you've been in in Colorado since the late seventies. Late seventies. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you come in here and 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 you start. You're working within the oil and gas industry at that point. Yeah, my first job was with uh, Colorado Interstate Gas. Okay. And it was a unique opportunity because at that particular time, they had just signed the exclusive exploration rights with Burlington Northern Railroad to explore on the mineral checkerboard through the Williston Basin, Montana, and North Dakota. Mm -hmm. So I showed up and they said, here, kid, here's two and a half million acres. Make some prospects. Find us some oil. All right. And that was my entry into the, into the oil and gas business, uh, really the exploration end of the business. And my very first prospect was a discovery, and I was hooked for life right. from there. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, and then from there, you ended up um, uh, certainly at, at. Did you go to Samson at that point, or afterwards, or how did that? Well, it's, it's a long checkered checkered oh, okay. history <laughs> career. It wasn't you know. just an automatic. No, no, no. Samson <laughs> was fairly recent in my career history. You know, I went through the eighties. Mm. And uh, the late 80s, 1986 came around and uh, Those are tough, tough times. Denver went into a complete depression. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it was really the depression era for us in the oil industry. Right. Most people lost their jobs or if you had a job, it was a pretty weak level of activity. But, you know, I had just gotten married, had my first baby coming along and bought a big old house, had a huge mortgage back then when they were mortgage rates were quite high. And I walk in one day and say, Rich, you know, we're closing the office down. So here's your form for unemployment insurance. Right. Wow. So the late eighties were hard in Colorado uh, and in the oil and gas business. So, so what'd I, you do to, I mean, did you 
uh, during that time period? Yeah, so I was, uh, you know, I had to, I had to put pay pay that mortgage and take care of the family. So I did a lot of different things. I had five different jobs. I was a well site geologist for one of the few companies that was still drilling wells in North Dakota, and I would do follow a rig around up there. I made some uh, investments and bought a car wash and put a snowplow on my Jeep <laughs> so that, you know, and because I had to keep the car wash open. Well, then I became, got into the snowplow, snowplow business. business. Yep. And I also uh, had a job selling business opportunities. I got my real estate license and. No kidding. I didn't know that. And I was, I was uh, in business opportunity sales. So that was really kind of my MBA training because I had to look at companies' P&L statements and yep. balance sheets and evaluate and value everything from back then it was video stores to right. major manufacturing companies. I, I you know, family-owned businesses were typically, typically the thing, and the business ran their course, and the owners wanted to sell out. So that was the business I, I got into, and I got quite, a, quite an education in, uh, on the business side there. So I'm sensing a theme of, of multiple jobs. You still yep. have a lot of different ones yep. and finding a way. And so when you think about oil and gas and, and I've, I've been in this industry for a short period of time, you know, the past decade, we tend to find ways in oil and gas to, to overcome different hurdles. And so now you're, you're at the helm of Great Western, um, CEO there. We've certainly, you know, are in the environment where we we've started to have more of a dialogue here with the community. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about Great Western and and your role there, um, as your past as we've led up to kind of shaped where you are today. Yeah, sure. So obviously we are a reflection of all our past experiences, and so actually some of those difficult times prepared me quite well for. Uh, future managing a company. You know, when I started at Great Western, you know, oil was trading at a, a hundred bucks a barrel. We went through the $28 a barrel too. Right, so right. I had to manage through that. Yeah. But, you know, uh, I joined Great Western in uh, 2012. So a little bit about six years ago. Right. And it, it was a, it was a small family owned company. It's the bro group out of Denver who really is a uh, multifaceted family office. Mm -hmm. The majority of their um, business has been around real estate. And they had purchased a real estate investment in northern Colorado, in the, just outside the town of Windsor. It was the Kodak Industrial Park. And this was back in 2006, when Kodak was going into bankruptcy, they acquired that property and the industrial park and about 5,000 acres of land. And Mr. Bro uh, had a good friend, a guy named Tom Petrie, who we all know, yep. who, who was a fellow art collector with, with Mr. Bro. And Mr. Petrie said, well, Pat, make sure you get the mineral rights under those 5,000 acres because you're in Wattenberg Field. Right. And Mr. Bro said, what are mineral rights? <laughs> <laughs> so that's the, that was the beginning of Great Western. And so from 2006 until the time I joined in 2013, they had been a, a small vertical driller mm -hmm. and had drilled a number of wells and had, you know, um, when I joined, it was less than 2,000 barrels a day of production. Gotcha. And where are you guys today? Over 50,000. Yeah. So some tremendous growth. Yeah, we've had we've had a, a great run. So one of my first jobs were to stop drilling vertical wells and uh, convert this to a horizontal driller. And my experience and my team at Samson, the previous company, we had drilled hundreds of horizontal wells. So. Was that your mandate going into to, uh, Great Western? I think the mandate for Mr. Bro was fix this company because gotcha. it's not going anywhere. And, uh, and you know, that's exactly what I, I had done in my career before is build companies with a starter kit and build them into you know, uh, my previous example at Samson, you know, I opened the Denver office for the Schusterman family here in 2002, and we had made a small acquisition in Wyoming. 
when we sold that in 2012 for $7.2 billion, four of it was allocated to our Rocky Mountain division. Hmm. So we had over a million acres from North Dakota to New Mexico. And uh, so uh, Mr. Bro hired me to, to grow the company. And, and uh, similar, so from a, a leadership perspective, mm-hmm. um, are they, are they the, always the same challenges that, you know, you're like, okay, I'm, I'm, I know what needs to be done here as we go from vertical to horizontal, or is it, you know, completely set of uh, new set of challenges that you deal with? Yeah, well, um, I've always been technically oriented. So most of my challenges through most of my career have been on the technical side. Uh, since I've been in with Great Western and all our assets are in Colorado, all my risks are above ground now. All right. Yeah. So our challenge is we, we're doing amazing things technology-wise below the surface, but my learning curve has had to be dealing with the issues on the surface. <laughs> yeah. Well, it- Let's dive into some of that because I think you're at a really interesting perspective. And one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on this podcast was, you know, talk a little bit about the state of the, the industry and the Colorado energy perspective, um, given some of the, the government uh, initiatives that have taken place and some of the, the perspectives that, that folks that aren't living this Colorado uh, oil and gas market every day may have and, and get some, maybe get a little bit of a reality check. Um, so certainly from your, your seat as a, a CEO and then also on, on the board at COGA, you know, what are, can you kind of explain a little bit of, of what's going on here in Colorado um, from your seat and how, how is that dialogue uh, having to take place? So obviously things took a dramatic change after the last November election, but even prior to that, Colorado has always been a leader on the regulatory front, Uh, you know, back to Governor Ritter's days. uh, You know, uh, the operators and producers in this state have always done an an amazing job of complying with ever-increasing regulations. And we do that. We do that every day. But we've done it mainly because the resource here in Colorado is clearly one of the best in the lower 48. Yeah. We have some of the lowest break-evens in parts of uh, northeast Colorado that, uh, you know, compare with the best of the best in, in the Permian Basin. So, you know, there, there's, there's, the prize is worth the effort. But what's grown here is that, you know, we as an industry more broadly, we've just continued to evolve. Like you say, we, we face challenges every day and historically have overcome challenges. Um, and we rise to those occasions. So our social license to operate in the state of Colorado has incre- is increased our efforts every year. Every- I think this industry in Colorado in particular, um, industry has proven willing to to. Ad- to work with their communities to move that ball forward. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I, I mean, like from my perspective, not just from what Great Western does, but, you know, representing the three the other 300 member companies in Koga, I see every day the efforts and the uh, and the thoughtfulness that, that these other companies put into their operations in Colorado, and it's unprecedented. It, 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 it's really, you know... I coined, you might have heard me coin the term, in Colorado, we have to operate meticulously in -hmm. order to be successful. And so we produce meticulous methane here in Colorado. (laughs) I did see that. Uh, It was, uh, you know, you you do have a a presentation on out there, the state of the industry market from the Colorado energy perspective, which... Uh, was very interesting. Um, And uh, part of the reason why I wanted to talk about that a little bit um, and expand on some of those themes um, where we could. Um, And I guess that as I'm kind of thinking about this and 
one of the things that we were saying is, all right, the oil and gas industry is continually evolving and reinvents itself, um, finds ways to make money through all these cycles. Um, what needs to happen now? Yeah, well, you know, I think uh, what needs really needs to happen now is that um, we can't, number one, afford a hiccup. So we share best practices amongst all the operators. This is something that COGA is driven operator um, committees that we actually now share best practices so that we can understand where risks are and how we mitigate those risks. And we do a great job of sharing that amongst the other operators. What also has to happen now is that, you know, we have to live in the 181 world. And the 181 world, the principle, the overlying principle there was increase public health and safety and allow for more local control. Well, we've been doing that all along. That's nothing new for, for the operators, right? We are totally aligned when it comes to public health and safety because, you know, we're a safety-oriented industry and our employees work, are, are trained to go through very rigorous uh, safety. And they really are. Yeah. And, we're, and, we're, and we're measured. We're measured against, you know, uh, certain standards that, you know, we we have to report any accident that takes place in our day-to-day operations. So it's 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 number one ingrained in our corporate values is safety. And you know, the other the other component of local control, well, you know, we've had to live with work local control all along. Right. Um, you know, uh my company was one of the first companies five years ago to sign an MOU with Adams County. So this MOU memorandum of understanding is an agreement we made with the Adams County commissioners that we would go above and beyond the state regulations. And we've done that for the past five years. Uh, you know, now what you're seeing is, is they're trying to formulate the things that we were doing into, into rulemaking. And that's where the that's where our challenges are going to be going forward because it's complex. But uh, our, our MOU is a, a model for what other municipalities could do. Yeah. Well, I'll just ask the simple question. Yeah. Do you still have rigs working in Colorado? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I've spent a lot of time talking with our investors, um, our public uh, bondholders, uh, our investors there. And, you know, there's a perception and then there's the reality. Right. Right. So the perception is they read in the media that, you know, Colorado's closed for business. Well, that's so far from the truth, um, you know, even in Adams County, even though they they did declare a, a temporary moratorium, we got seven pads approved over the past three months. Right. So, gotcha. you know, I have two rigs running, two frack spreads running. Actually, today, three frack spreads running because we're drilling so fast. It takes three frack spreads to keep up with two rigs. That's incredible. Um, but, you know, and we have an inventory of permits, but... Uh, you know, it's going to take a while for the COGCC to work through their understanding of what the new uh, 181 regulations, what those specific. Um, Actually, before say. kind of diving into 181 per se, but yeah. you just kind of brought up, uh, you know, uh, the rigs. And it seems to me that Great Western really is this leader on multiple fronts. And um, are you the first to run this twin rigs and frack crew pads? I believe in Colorado we are, yeah. you know, okay. in, in some other basins, uh, some other operators have done that. Um, uh, but in Colorado, uh, we experimented with putting dual rigs and dual frack spreads. And the reason is, you know, is multiple. Number one, uh, first of all, it's the social aspect. Um, our, our neighbors see us put up a sound wall and put up two drilling rigs and they say, well, what's going on, on behind those walls? Mm-hmm. And the reality is we're doing it just so we can get in and get out that much quicker. So two rigs can drill the number of wells we need to drill on a specific pad in half the time. Yep. As yeah. simple as that. And that's what we're doing. So we're trying to minimize our, our impact on the community by getting in and getting out quickly. Number, number two is, you know... Uh, 
it's really shortened our our time from first spud to first sales, which obviously helps our cash flow. Exactly. And, and so there's a financial benefit. Operationally, you know, it, it creates efficiencies because we only have to we can share resources on each pad. And then we think it does a better job of uh, with the the parent-child relationship on the multiple wells really? we drill on a pad okay. yeah, minimizes some of that impact. No, that's it's it's really interesting. Do you uh, so you're using two different uh, groups uh, servicing those or, or? so uh, on the drilling side we have the same drilling contractor operating both rigs. Okay. On the on the completion side though we we have one operator on one side of the pad and one operator on the other side of the pad. Which kind of creates a little uh, a little natural competition, <laughs> but it's turned out to work for everybody's advantage. It's really raised the level of efficiency. So we've improved the number of stages we can get done in one day mm -hmm. by just not changing anything, but putting that uh, competitive crew across the, across the pad. I do think it's it's really important to be able to kind of message on out so that people understand the uh, the efforts that people are that the companies like yourselves are going through to. Uh, minimize that footprint. You know, you talk about social license and, you know, you, you don't want neighbors in, in the community being upset by, you know, seeing this. So you try to get in, get out, do the job um, with minimal impact. And and it seems to me that the biggest challenge within, and I'm going a little bit off topic here, but the oil and gas industry is, you can message that internally within this organ, you know, within the industry, but getting it out and external uh, seemingly is primarily being controlled by politicians. Um, and I would really like to be able to, and we want to be able to help message on out the advantages uh, and what the industry is doing to be helpful. And it's not a knock on COGA at all. I know you guys are doing that as well. Um, but, uh, you know, when you think about your role within COGA, how do you, you know, what, what can be done to kind of help message that on out? And is that the primary message? Uh, you know, every day, we continue to run into the biggest conflict in in the areas where we operate is people just do not understand what what we're doing out there. Right. Even today, even with all the messaging, all the commercials and all the media that we've tried to get across, you know, at the end of the day, we're making eight inch holes in the ground. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> We're drilling eight-inch holes in the ground, and they're a mile and a half below the surface. Yeah. You know, so when we tell them we're dr going to drill under your house, but it's a mile and a half below your house, uh, they're still kind of flabbergasted to this day. You know, so we do a very, a very diligent job to try to educate whenever we come into a new area to talk to all the surrounding people. And we run a, a, a town hall. It's, it's actually almost like a science fair. Mm-hmm. Right, we have separate booths. This is the driller. This is what he's doing. This is the completion group. This is what they're going to do. This is the marketing and production group. This is what they're going to do. And you know, so we we try to educate the people as best we can. And and it's it's amazing uh, how how people's eyes just open up and they say, "Wow, I didn't realize that." Right. You know. You know, uh, but. but the technology and, and horizontal drilling has done just such an amazing job because, you know, we're in an old oil field up in Wattenberg. Right. This, I used to work for HS Resources, one of the early <laughs> operators, and we drilled a well every 40, sometimes every 20 acres. So think about that. In a, in, in a section of land, there were 20, 40 wells spread out across that whole section of land. Now... We drill from one nine-acre pad right. to, and we're actually drilling three-mile-long laterals right now, which is just amazing. Okay. It is amazing, actually. And yes. how many wells are you putting on some of those pads? So it's anywhere from twenty to thirty wells a pad. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And they're they're like I say they're they're one two or even three-mile-long laterals. We're drilling three-mile. We've drilled some three-mile-long laterals under the city of Brighton which is an area that was never drilled before mm -hmm. because they couldn't even find those little 20-acre spots within the city limits. So we're outside the city limits, but we're able to drill under under the whole city. And 
you know, the city actually owns mineral rights under their parks and certain right-of-ways. Really? Right okay. mm -hmm. So we're, we're going to be able to generate some mineral revenue for the city of Brighton, which is huge because, you know, city of Brighton, unfortunately, doesn't have the revenue to even send their kids to school five days a week. They only have a four-day school week yeah. in Brighton. And on Fridays, working parents have to find a place to put their kids. So we've worked closely with the Boys and Girls Club of Adams County to help uh, support that. And that's where usually your kids end up on a Friday if you live in Brighton. No kidding. Yeah. So it's sad, but hopefully we'll be able to contribute to their their revenue in the city. That might help things a bit. Hmm. As uh, chairman of COGA, you did have that opportunity, especially during the 181 um Goings on. How many late nights did you have uh, in front of different groups? Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> once the legislative start legislation started and they dropped that first version of the bill, uh, it was it was uh, a concerted concerted effort. You know, not only on my part, but you know, to to the credit of the Koga staff mm -hmm. who really put in the long hours and to all our member companies who contributed resources to our committees we were able to from that first bill to the end get 32 amendments added to it which right. made something that was totally unworkable a little better workable so it was it was a challenge and it took a very collaborative effort to get to the point where we ultimately did but they they did work with you though they heard your message? Uh, you know, um, it's to the credit of, of the House and Senate leadership, especially on the House side, that really helped uh, understand that you, you don't want, do not want to make bad legislation here. All right. And we're still seeing certain unintended consequences of that legislation, but I'm confident we'll be able to work through it. That's awesome. And yeah. so, it, it, you know, the, the community in... in are as we went through leading up to the election cycle and now the legislative cycle uh not that we weren't coming together but there was a, a much more kind of coming together from from all the operators uh kind of a continued dialogue and based on what we were kind of talking about before we came in here that's continuing and is do you see that as as kind of the the path forward one of those evolutions that that we need to make so I saw that as as my num one of my number one jobs in the, my role as the chairman of Kogo mm -hmm. is to kind of herd the cats, <laughs> and uh, you know we've got everybody's got their own individual agendas as independent operators, but you know uh, it, it is has been rather amazing to see how many of our member companies have really come together and uh, try to come with a, uh, a concentrated effort to try to make this thing as workable as possible and to continue the viable industry that we have in this state. You know, it's so funny. Uh, we see how the demographics of Colorado is changing and, you know, I'm a transplant. Yeah. <laughs> many of us are transplants. Uh, but, you know, many of the new transplants show up. They don't really take the time to understand the history of this wonderful state. It was really founded on the extraction industry, right. you know, back in the uh, 1800s with the gold rush. And, you know, it continues to this day. Well, very much so. And I think as we think about, you know, why we came here and you gave your background and, and many others, you know, we're all wanting to come here and enjoy the, the environment. and uh, We live and we work here. And Absolutely. so I think that's that's something that we all have in common. And so we have to start from those those commonalities. Yeah. And, in a lot of ways. You know, and uh, back back to the November election when we had the ballot initiative, you know, I thought it was really interesting for people to note, you know, we defeated that ballot initiative. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting to note in the areas where we work, it was defeated so handily. In Weld County, it was defeated 75-25. In right. Adams County, it was sure. defeated 65-35. I mean, these are the people who are impacted by our business, but yet they were supportive of our industry. And I think that that tells a lot. Yeah. And, and even through Weld County's uh, actions after 181, and they seem to be very supportive in, in working and, and making sure that 
they're an advocate for for the industry as well. Well, they've just been the beneficiary of 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 this amazing, fortunate resource that they have in their county. Were you surprised by Adams County uh, and the moratorium? Uh, you know, uh, I mean, just it seemed a little reactionary, but maybe it wasn't. Maybe a misunderstanding. You know, I, I think it was it was really driven by their staff and their concern that they were going to be bombarded with this rush of permits at the last moment before the bill was instituted. Right. And so I think that was uh, that was a valid concern. You know, there's a small staff there and, and they were concerned they were going to have to do, you know, this inordinate amount of work. But I think, you know, our relationship with Adams County is is very good. And the fact that they said that they would continue to work on permits that were already in the mill, I think that was a testament to their ability to, to, to be honest and straightforward. And I think they're committed to have this short-term moratorium uh, not extended. Right. That's so pumping of the brakes, as it were. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. yeah. Okay. And that's fair. Yeah. Um, how about Boulder County and their moratorium? You know, uh, Boulder County obviously is a, has a different mindset about oil and gas. And fortunately, there's not much oil and gas there. But on easternmost, easternmost uh, Boulder County, there's many of, like I mentioned, those historical vertical wells. Mm -hmm. I, I, I really think they're missing the boat because those would all get plugged out and all that surface area would be recouped back to open space yeah. and replaced by one nine or 10 acre pad. So it's it, it, it seems like they're they're forgetting the forest for the trees. It would actually clear up right. much of their eastern portion of the state. And if they were allowed to use horizontal drilling to recover, the, you know, the the remaining resources. So, you know, I think Boulder County obviously has a has a different mindset when it comes to just fossil fuels in general. Right. So, you know, you're not going to change them. But, you know, my attitude is when they stop buying the products that are made with the resources that we produce, I think then then we can do without, without our industry. <laughs> but until that happens, you know, they're still using our natural gas and, and the products that are made with our our, our uh our oil. Yeah, right. and there's still a dialogue to be had. And I, you know, I think, you know, we've shown as an industry that we continue to show up and work to try and have that dialogue. Yeah. I think that's important. Yeah. Yeah, I've never actually seen any company be like, you know, oh, we, we're not going to, you know, just leave us alone. We're not going to talk to you. Uh, I think most most companies that we've dealt with are, are fairly straightforward. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, we're not going to force our way in. We're going to try to kind of do the collaborative things that we do to find the least impactive way to do it. And uh, we have the technology to do it. Speaking of tech, and I kind of glossed over it earlier, we were talking about Great Western in particular, and not to get away too much from you know the, the regulatory aspect, but I did want to touch on, because I love, uh, absolutely love oil field tech. And, and you guys are really, um, I think actually you, you really do embrace technology to improve your efficiencies. And um, I, I think not only just downhole, but if I'm not mistaken on your, on, on your website, you guys talk about this sort of emissions um, uh, grid that, you, mm -hmm. that you're trying to implement, use drones and stuff like that. And, right. Uh, how's Tell us about that, if you could, because I'm fascinated by that. Yeah. So even before 181, we were in the process of testing a number of technologies to monitor our pads for uh, emissions, methane emissions. Obviously, you know, that's the product we sell. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> we want to know when we're having emissions, right? So uh, we're experimenting with a, a new technology that really we put a series of sensors around the pad and it creates a, a, an algorithmic grid that can pinpoint any sort of uh, emissions down to within three feet. So wow. we can pinpoint it down to the specific valve that might be 
having a slight leak. But, you know, we were, we're moving forward towards constant 24-hour emissions, and we've got those services on a number of our pads. And again, this is something we collaboratively worked out with specifically Adams County. Um, it's interesting, you know, this technology allows us not only to tell when we're seeing uh, methane or volatile, volatile organic carbon emissions from our pad, but also it can tell when it's coming from sources outside of our pad. So like natural or? Well, so some of our, our pads are very close to 470 highway. Gotcha. So you can see in the morning during rush hour when the emissions go up. Yep. And then in the afternoon during rush hour, the emissions go up. So, and that's all coming from the highway, right? Right. But there are other other sources of, of natural emissions, um, and this heat just kind of creates it, whether it's organic material that's already uh, on the surface or or even some other industries that do it outside of ours. Yeah. So staying in, in kind of the, the Great Western frame and, and tying it back to a little bit of the regulatory environment, uh, how does any of... 181 change the way that you operate your business or or your financial decision making uh, as you put capital to work uh, in the DJ Basin? Well, you know, obviously it's created this perception out there that, you know, uh, it's created an unknown because the rules haven't been written. The rules will be written over the next 24 months. So it's going to be a process. But in the meantime, you know, we're still working. Um, but yeah, to make uh, to make uh, our business decisions. Look, you know, we we are a hundred percent Colorado company. We're not going into another state. We're going to figure out a way to work within the framework. Some of the other larger companies, you know, they have assets in other states, so they may be diverting capital to other states. You know, just because they have the opportunity. We're here. We're not going anywhere. So we're going to. We're going to stick it out, um, and so we're going to find methods. But um, yeah, it's it's created it's created some challenges for some of the smaller companies who really, you know, fortunately we've grown to a size where we can live within cash flow. Um, and uh, but some of the smaller companies who need who still need access to outside capital, uh, they're having a hard time again just because the investment community is perceiving that we can't work here right and and that's just wrong uh, and that perception we you quantify it as a number how much money did did over the past 12 months did well you know if you, if you if you look at if you look at the publicly traded colorado companies uh and and you look at what it's done to their stock prices i mean it's almost five billion dollars of value has been hit because right. of the uh investor sentiment that, you know, why should I invest here in Colorado and take that extra risk when I can invest in North Dakota? You know, uh, it's, it's a big number. Yeah. A big number. We need to fix that. And the governor is the only one that can really fix that. And and how can he fix that? Well, he just has to say that, you know, we're, the, indus the state is still open for business. Right. We're going to protect health and public safety. And we're going to protect... Uh, uh, individual government's rights, but we're not shutting the oil and gas industry down because we we provide almost a billion dollars of tax revenue to the to the uh, state coffers every year. Right, and I, you know, um, Governor Hickenlooper, he showed real leadership. I felt um, in working with the industry, and I think this is a great opportunity for Governor Polis. To do that as well, um, where it's uh, it, it's not leadership with a heavy hand, as might be interpreted by 181, but working in conjunction to satisfy both uh, his constituents as well as industry for the overall benefit of the state. Because at the end of the day, everyone wants Colorado to be a great place to be, a great place to work, a great place that that you know where you know the citizens are being taken care of and. We're still able to have an industry that matters, um, and that's really you know when we look at it from where we even having our um, you know shameless plug 
our oil and gas conference coming up here next month, where we're bringing in 2,000 investors from across the nation to meet in Denver and hear companies tell us how they're going to navigate through the remainder of the year um, and message exactly what you just said. Uh, for the Colorado operators, we're still open for business and, and, and we're still, you know, viable. Yeah, it's hugely important. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, and I think we're a role model. Uh, the operators in other states who don't think this is coming to their their neighborhood are in for a rude awakening, because uh, we as an industry just we continue to challenge ourselves to do better. Right. We always have, you know. Um, I think of the Apollo thirteen mission where where those astronauts were. They were circling the moon and they had a huge problem. We, we've, as an industry, have just always worked the problem. We will always work the problem to come up with a solution. And you're right. We can have it both ways here in Colorado. We can have a great environment and we can have a viable industry and we can have a smaller footprint. But we, we are fortunate that we have these resources that benefits the whole state. Yeah. The... Um I do have a question for you. It's it's a sort of the national level because I'm at the opposite end of the spectrum of hey, we want to work and we want to you know uh, really proponents everywhere at this table proponents of the industry. On the flip side, you've got the Green New Deal. Uh, <laughs> do you, would you care to comment on that at all? <laughs> you don't have to. <laughs> you know. I, uh, it's fine to have aspirational goals, but, you know, clearly that's all that is. Right. The reality of that dream is, 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 is not supported by the physics, right. the science. And we just don't have a way to go to 100% renewables without having a dramatic impact on our lifestyles. Yeah. Uh, it's just that simple. Until we have some major technological breakthroughs in whether it's battery storage, but I, you know, I've, I've always been in all of the above. You know, I've had that conversation with Governor Hickenlooper for many years. You know, we we were supportive of all of the above. Solar is an amazing technology. Right. Uh, wind, you know, in the right places, it has its application. Uh, but you know, I think we've missed the boat on nuclear. I think I completely from, agree. From from just a, just a physics of density. You can replace all those thousands of windmills with one small, compact nuclear reactor. Look, the Navy's got them sh sh running ships all around the globe safely. So, you know, to me, I think we're really missing the boat on nuclear. And oil and gas, uh, well, just, you know, natural gas really is, is, is really been the sole source of cleaning up our, our air. I was shocked when I saw your uh, presentation, and and I don't know if we can share that or not. I, I'd love to if we can, but we, we can talk about that. Sure. But, um, the uh, that you were saying that um, coal uh, in Colorado. So Colorado is a net exporter of um, of energy uh, energy product. Yep. Um, and yet, coal is our secondary. Oh, the large, second largest component of energy yeah. well, still, is more than natural gas. Uh, electricity, our electricity is still generated, 45% of our electricity is still generated by coal-fired power plants. What's it going to take In 2018. To, now, yeah. now, you know, they have plans to uh, terminate those plants over time. But, you know, last year, we still are generating the, uh, a, a huge chunk through coal-fired power plant. I would love to see that go to nat, nat gas. It, it, it would be a simple solution. But, you know, again, it's still in economics. You know, investors made a huge investment in building those coal-fired power plants, and some of them are not that old. Mm. But uh, you know, they're going to have to bite the bullet. And it's easy. It's easy to just put a combined cycle natural gas-powered uh, turbine and hook it into the same wires that, you know, the the coal plant is already uh, pushing electrons down the wire. <clears throat> yeah, it, uh, I found it, uh, I was like, wow, I, what's it going to take for us to get there? And, and certainly there's obstacles. And as you mentioned, there's not only the investment aspect of it, there's the, the, 
the human social aspect of it. You know, um, you know, people, you know, I'm in this one industry and now I have to be in a different one um, as a potential issue. But I see there's such a huge opportunity. If people really are interested in having a win-win scenario of clean or cleaner mm-hmm. energy sources, it just seems like it's such a natural fit. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. All righty. Well, we're about uh, 50 minutes or so into this. Aaron, did you have anything else? No, I I, I just want to thank you for your time. I think that was a awesome conversation <laughs> yeah no doubt was, and uh i did have one last one that was my fourth of july skiing because you're a skier i don't <laughs> i didn't know if you were a basin to... was open uh but uh, i usually hang up my skis usually in april and uh trade it in for my golf clubs yeah, there, you yeah. go. there you go <laughs> yeah. uh, do, you, do you still get much skiing done i mean do you, are you an avid skier absolutely yeah yeah uh i i've got a group of skiers uh that we've been skiing for 40 years together every every february we go up to aspen it's called the three flags exploration conference and it's made up of geologists engineers landmen and we go do five days in aspen together we've done it for 40 years together with the same group of guys and and uh this year was our 40th year it's it's been an amazing amazing uh group of people and an incredible network we've all we've all done business together yeah, uh, and the three flags are the U.S. flag, the Canadian flag, and the Texas flag. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I, uh, uh, you yeah, know, we, we saw that a base was open. I was like, I wonder if. <laughs> so, yeah, you didn't go, did you, Aaron? I didn't. Okay. We uh, we got all of our skiing in this winter, and you know, I traded in for my my road bike. <laughs> there, there you go. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Rich, thank you very much for being here today. I do appreciate that. And, um, you know, uh, we're actually, we're looking forward to, again, anybody on out there, um, uh, you've graciously allowed uh, to be on a private company uh, panel for us at the upcoming oil and gas conference. So yeah, looking forward um, to that. Looking forward to that. It's going to be yourselves and Karis and Crestone Peak, uh, Tony Buchanan over there. And, um you know, if uh, we have any questions that are coming on up, if uh, you have follow-on questions, anybody on out there, you can always send them on over to ogpodcast at intercominc.com. We will get back to it and uh, uh, forward any questions along if it makes sense. Um, you know, and uh, just thank you very much for being here. We've appreciated it and your time. And uh, until next time, thank you. Thank you.